on January 21st, 2014, I was uh, having lunch with a member of this congregation, Joe Clark. Joe, where are you at? Joe Clark. We had a wonderful lunch in the Logan uh, Square neighborhood uh, near Milwaukee in 1994, Irving Park Road. And uh, uh, I guess Irving Park neighborhood, really, a little west of Logan Square. We talked about our plans for the future. We talked about a potential finance small group and talked about the future of Emmanuel Anglican Church and talked about how he and Cheryl were doing. I left that lunch encouraged, put my boots on, tromped through the snow, uh, found my way back to my car, and uh, was looking forward, really, to the next time Joe and I got to talk. That was Tuesday. Friday, January 24th, I get a text message from his wife, Cheryl. Call me now. Joe's in the hospital. I drove to the hospital, and I could not believe my eyes, because the man that I had breakfast with three days before, looking sharp, looking good, <laughs> was laying unconscious with a feeding tube and a breathing tube on a hospital bed, like that. It was a night and day difference. I, I didn't know what to do, but I prayed. I prayed with Cheryl. I found amazing peace in Cheryl's heart. And I, and I prayed over Joe, and I remember uh, praying over him this blessing before I left. I anointed his head with oil, and I asked Jesus in my heart, please let me talk with Joe again. I want more adventures with this man. And I sealed his forehead in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I prayed this prayer. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I could barely get the prayer out. For three and a half weeks, Joe lay unconscious in his hospital bed. They were coming up to the point where a tracheotomy would be required in order to continue to get the food in to his stomach. Cheryl was asking for us to pray, and I remember... Uh, there was a Saturday night, Saturday night before the worship service here, one of our neighbors actually went into labor and needed uh, me to come over and watch their, uh, their child while they went to the hospital. And I remember uh, at that moment where new life was about to come into the world, I remember feeling particularly moved to ask our church to pray for Joe. And I knew that that prompting wasn't from me, um, but it was supposed to pass through me. And so I emailed the listserv that we have here, and just said, hey, church community, let's pray for Joe. Let's pray that he doesn't have to have that tracheotomy. Let's pray for his life. Let's pray that he's revived. We came to worship the next morning, and I walked up the stairs, and I walked out the door and opened my phone, and I got an email from Cheryl, and it said this, many of you prayed that Joe would be more alert by Monday to avoid a tracheotomy. God has heard our prayers. Joe is much more alert and they're even going to remove the breathing tube today at 2 o'clock. He has a long way to go. Please continue to pray. Let me tell you, Joe had viral encephalitis, completely took him out in body and in mind. He was unconscious. 60% of the people that get viral encephalitis do not recover at all. The remaining 40% that do recover, most of the time, do not gain their full faculties. They do not gain their full mental and physical faculties. 
it was a huge question whether or not Joe would come, not only come away from death's door, but that he would come back fully recovered. What we saw was a series of miracles, and what we saw was Joe coming back better than ever. In fact, I was talking with Joe today, and he said, my math skills are better. (laughs) Now, for me, a young priest who has not seen a lot of death, to see one of my friends go to death's door and come back alive and well was so powerful, it changed me forever. And I'll tell you why. Number one, it was true. It wasn't a myth. It wasn't a metaphor. It's different than a metaphor. It's historical. Flesh and blood, it is reality. Not just to me personally, not just in my heart, but in history. Number two, it's personally powerful. I get to interact with this man. He's not just an idea. He's not just a feeling. He's a person. And it's powerful for me to see him come back to life and for me to be be able to interact with him. It's historically true and it's personally powerful. That gives me hope, my friends. Those two things together give me hope. As such... Our friend Joe's dramatic recovery is a signpost. It's a signpost that points to a truer and more profound victory over death, which is Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave. Jesus Christ claimed to be God on earth. Who, is, who could ever claim to be God on earth and be in your right mind? He also claimed that he would rise on the third day. Many people thought he was a crazy messianic figure, just like all the other crazy messianic figures, except he was the only one that appeared and bodily formed after he was crucified. And he was raised to life. Because it is historically true, and because it is personally powerful, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a great hope. It's true, it's powerful, and it gives us hope. Because what Jesus said was, not only will I be raised from the dead, I will raise sons and daughters with me. They will share my immortality and I will renew the world. I will bring with my resurrection justice. I will bring with my resurrection peace. I will do with the world what God did with my own body, which was to bring it back to life purified, powerful, as it was meant to be. If Jesus was raised to life, my friends, in a historical way, he can raise anything to life. If Jesus was raised to life, he can raise anything to life, including us after we die. He has promised to bring justice and peace and renewal to the world and give immortality to anyone who will receive it as a gift. Anyone who will receive it as a gift. For some, that brings hope. Just me bringing this up, it stirs your hope. I think for many of us, though, it stirs up skepticism and cynicism. Because... I think in our minds we go, you know what, I'm a scientific person and the resurrection of Jesus sounds a lot to me like a metaphor for hope that's in our hearts. Maybe in ancient times people thought differently about life and death and resurrection made sense in their plausibility structure. But now that we've had the enlightenment, now that we have research, now that we have scientifically verifiable data, well, we know that it was really a metaphor. That Jesus, after he died, the memory of him lived on so powerfully that his disciples thought of him as resurrected. And so great promises of renewal actually don't enchant you, if that's the way you're thinking. 
Um, in fact, that could be, it, it, this could kind of be an annoying talk for you. <laughs> um, because you're not convinced that Jesus is alive. And, and I just want to say, I'm so glad you're here. And, I'm, and I, and I want to just um, introduce to you uh, the idea that it's historically true. And I actually want to invite you to, to follow that question to its end. Others of you, you perhaps believe in the, in the resurrection. Maybe you want to believe. You really want to believe in the resurrection, but you can't find the capacity in yourself to believe that it's true. And, and in fact, it discourages you. Um, maybe your prayers for renewal for yourself, for the world, feel kind of small <laughs> in the face of death. I know that's how it felt when I prayed for Joe. It felt, my prayers for him felt so small and so powerless in the face of what he was suffering. I mean, I saw him convulsing because it was hard for him to uh, accept the uh, breathing tube and the feeding tube. What, could, could, what good could my prayers for renewal be in the face of that? And so maybe you feel even embarrassed. You feel kind of embarrassed at the resurrection, embarrassed to even ask for or hope for renewal in the world. Whether we're skeptical or discouraged, I think that many of us are stuck and it's actually difficult for us to personally engage with the hope that is supposed to come from Jesus' resurrection. If it's supposed to fill us with hope, we're kind of stuck. That hope doesn't really propel us. That hope doesn't really fuel us because we're kind of in this place of in between where it's, it's a really cool idea, but I just can't believe it or I, I just don't believe it or I, I find myself lacking the capacity to believe it. Here's what I want to do today briefly. I want to invite you to open your heart and your mind to this hope again, I, I, wherever you're at. I want, I want to invite you to take the next step with your heart and with your mind um, because I don't want any of us to be without this hope because I believe we were born to have it. I believe that we are, uh, we are at our fullest and most alive when we are operating in the hope that Jesus gives. Um, I, I want to be filled with hope with, with you because I want to worship Jesus with you, not only now. I want to celebrate his resurrection, yes, April 20th, 2014. I want to celebrate it when we have immortal bodies together and he's in our midst. Maybe I'll be playing the flute. I can't play the flute right now. Maybe I'll be able to then. Maybe you'll be preaching. Who knows? I'm open to that. I just want to worship Jesus with you with immortal bodies. Two things we're going to do. Number one, um, I want to give you reason to consider the historical truth that Jesus was raised to life. The historical truth, flesh and blood reality that Jesus was raised to life. I don't want to browbeat you with it. I just want to present it to you and invite you to consider it and potentially take the question to the next step. Second, um, I want to describe a few ways that Jesus' resurrection brings power now. Okay? So we're going to talk first about it being true. Second of all, about it being powerful. Maybe you're a deductive person. You like to read books. You like to investigate. Um, you like to do your due diligence, the first part's for you. Maybe you're an uh, inductive person. You like to experience something to see if it works. Second part is for you. Um, either way, I want you to get to the same place, which is a place of hope. So, <clears throat> as many of you did, I did my taxes at the last minute. And um, it turns out that I withheld more than I needed to with the state, with the state of Illinois. And so the return I got was a little larger than expected, don't come asking me for money or anything. Uh, pretty much accounted for. Um, when I gave my tax information to my accountant, I did not say to him, give me hope. I did not say, make me happy. Take this information and make me happy. Make something up. Tell me a story that makes me feel good <laughs> so that I can be, you know, just live with more energy and self-improvement. 
No, I told here's what I said. I said, here's my tax info. Tell me what's real. Tell me what's true. Tell me what I can bank on. And I'll adjust. Because I'm not ready to live according to a lie, as good as it makes me feel. Let me tell you something. I wanted to find out the truth so the truth could set me free. And I want the same thing for you when it comes to Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a historically verifiable event. More historically verified than most other accounts in history that we take for granted as true. So it's not a fuzzy feeling and it's not a metaphor. Uh, When you look at the evidence, you find that the resurrection of Jesus is in alignment with the clues and facts from history, not cutting against the grain of the clues and facts in history. It's in alignment with, with historical data, not cutting against it. The burden of proof is on people who do not believe that Jesus was resurrected to account for the phenomenon that followed uh, what I believe to be his bodily resurrection from the dead. John 20 gives us a couple of clues. It's not the only clue, but I want to use this as a starting point. We'll go from there. John 20, verses 1 through 18, I believe is in your bulletins. It's marked as a later part, but it's actually verses 1 through uh, 18. Can you verify that? Okay, verses 1 through 18. Okay. So, um, here's what happened as John tells the story. Um, on the first day of the week, which was a Sunday... It was, it was the day that Jesus said, I, I will be raised up in three days. He said that many, many times. What's interesting, no one's going to the tomb after three days. No one, believes, no one believed that, especially, excuse me, after he died. It was not part of their plausibility structure that we have a messianic figure that we're following. He gets crucified and died and raises to life after three days. That was not something they were expecting. Hence, none of them were at the tomb except for Mary because she wanted to take care of the body. She wanted to pay last respects. Mary uh, is a woman of no social standing whatsoever. First of all, because in a deeply patriarchal society, she was a woman. Second of all, she was a mental case. She had uh, what uh, one of the Gospels described as seven demons cast out of her at one point. Seven uh, in in, uh, Semitic society was seen as a sign of completion, basically referring to a legion of demons. She was as possessed by evil as you could be. We don't see that a lot here. People see it all the time in Africa, all the time in India. Even people who don't believe in God or the existence of the supernatural go, people seem to be possessed by something. Anyway, Jesus cast those demons out of her uh, when, when he was, before he was crucified. She followed him to the end. She was one of the only people that stuck with him all the way up to the cross. And now she's coming to pay her last respects. And uh, while it was still dark, She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, verse 2, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, listen, okay, here's what she's not saying. Maybe he rose from the dead. He said he was going to. And I was just like, someone took the body. Someone took the body. We got to find the body. Someone's going to desecrate the body of Jesus. They're going to do something worse to him. And so Peter went with the other disciple the beloved disciple known as John, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
I love that. I, you know, I, it's the, the other disciples, the one who's writing this gospel. I love you put them in, yeah, and the other one ran faster than Peter. But anyway, they got there. And stopping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. He kind of peeked his head in. There's linen cloths there that was supposed to be covering Jesus' body. They're not there anymore. What's going on? Then Simon Peter came, Simon Peter huffing and puffing, not as fit as the beloved disciple apparently, (laughs) went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. He went into the tomb. He went all the way in. Maybe it's a little bit lighter right now, but in either case, he saw the, verse 7, the, well, verse 6, the cloths, linen cloths, verse 7, the face cloth, which have been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up by its, uh, in a place by itself. Uh, if someone stole the body, why would they take the linen cloths off and lay it neatly? Why would there not be disarray if someone was stealing the body? It does not look like uh, someone has stolen the body. And it also doesn't look like someone almost died and then recovered miraculously after being crucified and marked as dead and blood and water flowing from his side. He's definitely dead, but his clothes are definitely there. What's going on? Then the other disciple follows Peter in, reached the tomb first. He went in and he saw and he believed. All of a sudden it clicked for him. That was enough evidence. He believed Jesus was risen from the dead, but the evidence will continue to pile up. Um, uh, Number nine, for as yet they did not even understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary, she's weeping outside the tomb. She's like, they've taken him. She's completely blind to the fact that Jesus is right in her midst. And, uh, and he walks up to her and, and says, um, oh, she sees, she sees the angel in white. They say, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. She thought it was the gardener. She said, hey, where's the body? Give me back the body. Where have you taken him? And Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And then ask a deeper question. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking? Which is the deeper question here. She accuses him of of carrying the body away. And then he looks at her, verse 16, and says, Mary. Identifies her. And in, in identifying her, reveals himself as Jesus. And she clings to him and says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus tells her what is to come, which is, he says, don't, almost, it's almost, you could say he was saying, ouch, when he says, don't cling to me, ouch. (laughs) Um, uh, I am going to my Father and your Father, and when I do, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, which will give you my presence. He will, he will carry my presence with you and with Christians all over the world, we'll read later. Don't cling to me, there's something yet to come. Mary runs back and says, I have seen the Lord. This is uh, recorded in all four Gospels. Um, and what's remarkable is, think about this. If you're going to make up a story about the resurrection, if you're going to make up a story that someone rose from the dead, in a deeply patriarchal society, you would not use a woman as a testimony. If you're going to make up witnesses, you wouldn't choose Mary Magdalene, former mental patient, woman. Her testimony wouldn't even stand in any legal court of that day. But So the most plausible explanation for Mary being the one recorded as the one who saw Jesus, the most plausible explanation that Mary and the other women were the first people to see Jesus resurrected 
was if they were the ones to see him resurrected. That's the most plausible historical explanation, given the data that we have, given the best historiography that we have to work with. It's, it's a messy and therefore more reliable accounting of history. It's more raw. It's more real. It was not, uh, it was not glossed over. Furthermore, there were more eyewitnesses. Jesus, is a, Jesus appears later to the disciples. Jesus also appeared to up to 500 people at one time. He was a resurrected body on this earth for 40 days, during which letters were written, um, and soon after, letters were written saying, Jesus was resurrected, he ate with us, he appeared to up to 500 people at one time, while the eyewitnesses were still alive to say, hey, wait a second, that's not true. I never saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's a lie. There was plenty of time for the eyewitnesses to speak up and say, the historical record is wrong, but none of them did. They said, it's, well, yeah, it's true. We ate with him. We saw him. He appeared with us. Um, messianic deaths were always followed by crucifixions in that day. In no case did the followers of these messiahs before Jesus claim that they had a resurrected king. They always scattered, and these disciples were about to scatter. The Gospels even say they were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid, they were afraid, they were in fear. They were cowering in fear. And what happened after Jesus appeared to them uh, is that they went instantly from cowardly to courageous. Blaise Pascal said this, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Okay, 10 out of the 11 original disciples were martyred for preaching that Jesus rose from the dead. If you believed something to be a metaphor, would you die for it? If you believe something to be a hoax, would you have your throat cut for it? Here's another question for you. If you had done all your research on a stock or on a mutual fund, or a company, and you found out <clears throat> it's bankrupt, would you put all of your resources in that stock? No way. You would cut your losses and, 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 and find another stock, find another mutual fund, and they were about to find another leader, another way forward. They were about to go back to their professions, hoping to not get killed. Ten out of 11, they, they all were true to Jesus to the very end, ten out of 11 unto death, and that's where it gets real. In our world, we say, follow the money. You want to see what someone values? Follow the money. Look at the checkbook. Uh, when people don't have money, it really, it's follow the life. What do they die for? What do they give their life to? The eyewitnesses died preaching that they were eyewitnesses. The disciples had a self-preserving instinct just like we do. Only if reality was altered for them uh, would they unify around the resurrection of Jesus? He had given them the promise of resurrection for them, of immortality, and he had given them union in life, and they did not turn from him. So the burden of proof is on those who would say, no, there's another reason that from 30 AD to 300 AD, you went from 100 adherents and a marginalized group to 6 million adherents in the Christian church. If it's true, you can bank on it. If it's true, you can bank on it. Um, listen, you need to investigate Jesus' resurrection if you don't believe in it. And I'll tell you why. Uh, there's too much evidence 
that it happened for you to risk ignoring it. Um, it's too big of a risk for you to act like it's a myth. It's too, too, big, of a, too big of a deal to ask, act like it's a fairy tale. It is worth your time and attention, if you do not believe in the resurrection, to, I really do invite you to take the next step and investigate the resurrection. It's risky to not. Um, if you want to take the next step, there's a couple of books that I recommend. Um, one is called Surprised by Hope. It's a shorter book by N.T. Wright, where he goes into the historical evidence in detail. Um, there's also a book called Reason for God by Tim Keller, which uh, talks not only about the evidence for the resurrection, but also evidence for the existence of God. So it's true, but it's also powerful. Um, it's also powerful. Here we are at the second half. Uh, my friend, uh, I was sitting down with a friend a few years ago, not one that you know, not one in this city, and he said, Aaron, my marriage is in shambles. I had no idea. But he said, Aaron, my marriage is in shambles. Um, uh, last night I had a fight with my wife, and I threatened her with divorce, and I never thought that I would do that. What he was telling me was that something that started out so good disintegrated um, into almost nothing. Uh, his marriage almost dissolved. And what I saw in the next six months was I saw my friend and his wife go from a place of hopelessness and almost the death of their marriage to, um, to profound unity, profound life. I saw a resurrection of their love, a resurrection of their union, a resurrection of their trust. What I saw was I, I, both of them, neither one of them very emotional, by the way, both of them with tears in their eyes, confessing their love for one another. That is what Jesus does with his resurrection power now that he's been raised to life. His resurrection power is like electricity right now throughout the world. And it's constantly bringing life where there is death. Constantly bringing renewal where there has been degradation. It's always happening and it's always available. It's personally powerful. Now, we know that this will be completed when he comes, uh, when he comes again to renew the earth. But it's happening now and it can be experienced now. Um, there has to be. There has to be actual power associated with Jesus' resurrection. And if you've ever been to Trader Joe's, you know what Trader Joe's will tell you? They're like, you know what? Open anything you want in this store. Taste it before you buy it. Why? Because they know there's power in their products. <laughs> they know. They know. You're going to eat one of those little chocolates, and then you're going to get five bags, actually. So yeah, open it up. Taste it. They have confidence because they know that it works. Um, now listen, Jesus' resurrection is powerful, but it's not consumer-friendly power. It's not power that you can push like a button. It's power that you ask for like a child. You say, Jesus, bring your resurrection power in me. Bring your resurrection power around me. Bring your resurrection power through me. Bring your resurrection power to people that I care about the most, the places that I care about the most, the, the neighborhood that I pray about the most. Bring your resurrection power. And you know what? Sometimes we pray that for years and months and we don't see anything. It's not power that you can push like a button. It's power that you ask for. The Lord always brings renewal through those prayers. And for the people who open their heart and open their life to the resurrection power of Jesus, he renews lives, he renews minds, he renews bodies, he renews marriages, he renews neighborhoods in his timing and in his plan, but he always renews. Some of you have prayed for a loved one and they did not rise from the dead. They actually went to death and that brought profound grief to your life and perhaps discouragement. 
let me tell you that there is still hope for the Lord's renewal. He has a plan of which the death of your loved one is a part, is a piece. I invite you, if your hope has died, open your soul again this morning in this Easter celebration and ask the Lord, work in me, show up in my life. That is ultimately the prayer, the, uh, the experimental prayer, as it were. Jesus, if you're real and if you actually rose from the dead, I don't want to just read about it in a book. I want to see it with my eyes. So, show up in my life in any way that you see fit. And it's always on his terms. It's never quite on our terms, even though he invites our prayers. Second, more daring step is to show up to the places where the living God has said that he would show up. The scriptures say that he shows up in the local church. In worship services like this, in small groups, in acts of mission, he shows up where two or three are gathered to pray. He shows up predictably, but never like uh, that you can control. You can only ask for it. So ask for it. Ask for him to show up in your life and then show up into his life. And you will see Jesus' resurrection power operating in your life to bring renewal, to bring uh, life where there has been death and renewal where there's been degradation. Listen, if Jesus isn't alive, you should be concerned. How is there going to be renewal in your life? How will the, the things that you've done wrong be undone? How will the injustice in the world be fixed and made right? Here's what Richard Bauckham says. For all those who feel no compulsion to consider the resurrection of Jesus, consider those whom this world treats worst, those whose lives are most, mostly pain or grinding poverty, those whose lives are destroyed by disease or violence or abuse, the millions who die young before scarcely living at all, and there are indeed millions who die young. These are the people the myths of human progress have never had anything to offer. Human progress can only leave such people behind. They are the casualties of history. And Dr. Bauckham goes on to say, Jesus Christ does not leave them behind. He will raise them into his future. It is his future in which God himself, as the book of Revelation tells us, will wipe away every tear. And should we be tempted not to believe in the future of Jesus Christ, it is these people that we should remember. People who feel that this life is good enough and we need not hope for another are always affluent people leading comfortable, fulfilling lives. They may feel that this life is enough for them, but they have no right to think it is good enough for the millions whose lives have been misery. It is those people for whom Jesus Christ will be revealed in the end and for the rest of us if we care about them. And I would add, if we are open to the resurrection for ourselves and for our own life. I know that you do care about vulnerable people. I know that you do care. I know so many of you. I don't know all of you, but I know so many of you. I know you care about the vulnerable. So many of you have given your lives for the vulnerable. So many of you care so much about justice that you have given your money and your time and your energy and your hopes for the work of justice. And you know that we have a future. We know that the future of the world is not the sun burning out and then everybody dying as Nietzsche said it would. You know that's not true because you hope for more. The resurrection of Jesus anchors that hope in truth, historically, and it has power for your life right now. No matter where you're at, whether you're a skeptic, whether you don't know what you believe, whether you want to believe, maybe you perhaps have an anchored hope in Jesus Christ. No matter where you're at, you are welcome here. 
You are welcome here to worship with us and consider. I invite you to open your heart and your mind to the resurrection of Jesus. As you do, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.